I want to start reading in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, where it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here in Revelation chapter 20, we find hell as the lake of fire. What's interesting to me is that in the rest of the passages in the Bible that talk about hell, the lake of fire is never referred to as hell. Our study today is getting hell right, part two, or the fate of the ungodly, the nature of hell. And we will survey what the Bible has to say about hell. I'm hoping to get through this completely tonight, by the way. I don't want to do a part three. It should not surprise us that there are a lot of things that people get wrong about hell for a couple of reasons. Partially because people don't teach on it. And I understand that. Who wants to study all the time about hell? Who wants to tell people about hell? Uh, we are in a culture that wants to emphasize the love of God, and I'm not sure that's a wrong thing. Um, Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That passage has perishing and eternal life in the same passage. Also, because statements are made about hell that lack biblical evidence. In other words, when you listen to a lot of teachings about hell, they'll say something about hell and then they'll just go on as if it's true. They don't give you any passages that say what they're saying is true. And a lot of times when they give a passage, it really doesn't give evidence for it. You wonder when they, when they say hell is eternal because it says there's eternal punishment. And you go, does that mean permanent punishment or does that mean eternal punishment? Can we break that down to see what it means? But oftentimes, and oftentimes this happens in teachings as well, where statements are made and then they move on as if the statements are absolutely true. And it dri that drives me crazy as a, as a pastor who wants to give the foundations for why we believe what we believe. Now, you may not agree with the foundational passages that I give, but at least I'm trying to give passages in a real, honest, solid way about why we believe the very things that we are believing. Now, let me dispel some of the myths about hell right away. And I know most of you know this, okay? And I know most of you watching this know this, but I just want to dispel some of these things. Number one, the devil is not in control of torturing people in hell. That's number one. And we get this from Hades, the, the Greek god of the underworld who is in control of the underworld. We also get it from Looney Tunes because we have Looney Tunes that has Satan in control of hell and he is not. Number two, we're talking about torment, not torture. And this is really important. This is one of the biggest misunderstandings that we have about hell, I believe. It's not Dante's Inferno. It's not Milton's Paradise Lost. This is what came to be believed in the, in the, in the dark ages about hell, that people were being tortured in hell. It's torment of being separated from God. And there is some kind of punishment that is happening. But I don't know that the punishment that's happening is torture. And, and, and I don't find anything in the Bible. And I've done a lot of studying on hell over the last couple of months, especially over the last couple of weeks. And I don't find a passage that speaks of torture. I find torment, which is different. Someone can be in torment without being tortured. Certainly someone who is tortured is in torment, but someone can be in torment without being tortured. Number three, no one will be partying in hell. Now, I know you know that, but sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who says, look, man, I'd rather be partying with my friends in hell than going to heaven and hanging out with people from the church that I don't like. Well, I know they probably don't really believe anyone's partying in hell, but somehow I think some of them do. And I just think it's worth saying that biblically, there's nothing about anybody in hell being happy. It doesn't mean 
that they're full of regret. Remember C.S. Lewis's thing, hell is locked from the inside. And I don't know that I completely agree with him, but he believes that no one is in hell unless they want to be, that you've got a choice of being separated from God for eternity or with God. And who wants to be with God when they hate him? There are people that genuinely hate God. I even heard an atheist that said, I, if God were, were real and heaven were true, I would still not choose to go to heaven, even if it was true. Number three, hell is a place of punishment. People want to soften it and make it sound like it's not punishment, but it is a place. We will be punished for the deeds that we have done. And it is a place of punishment. Number whatever this is, fire, I lost count. Fire is most likely an analogy for torment rather than uh, torture. So, and, and Francis Chan does a really good job of bringing this point out in his book, Erasing Hell. And I know some of you guys have read it. It's a fairly short book. It's an easy read, um, but it really does cover all of these issues which we're talking about today. He did a good job. His was one of the first books that I read. And after I finished it, my initial thoughts on the book weren't, were, uh, that was okay. And then I did a lot of research. And then I went back and I listened to his book again. And my second response was, he did a really thoughtful, careful job with what he covered. He, he didn't recklessly cover anything. He was very thoughtful about it. And I quoted him last week saying, the duration of hell, the, the concept of the duration of hell is much more complicated than I first thought. And although I believe in eternal conscious torment, I cannot completely shut the door on the duration of hell of annihilationism of somebody being burned up. I can't remember how exactly he worded it, but it, it was a, it's a very thoughtful book. And he does a good job of showing that the fire oftentimes in the Bible is an analogy. It's an analogy of something that consumes. It's an analogy of something that torments. And so fire is used for that purpose. We see in James, we're going to see the passage tonight. I hope we get there where it says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. And that's an example of how fire is used as an analogy and that these passages are analogous. And when we get to them, we'll see a little bit more of that. Number th uh, whatever this is, the Bible never says the ungodly are resurrected in immortal bodies. So I heard one guy teach one time that that the uh, ungodly are resurrected to bodies just like we're resurrected to. We are resurrected to immortal bodies. We are resurrected incorruptible and that they are resurrected in the same kind of bodies and that, that, that they are tortured and then the body renews itself and they're tortured and it renews themselves and it's tortured like the fire's blistering off skin and then it renews itself and it's blistering off skin again. And again, that's, that's never anything that's been mentioned in the Bible. We don't know the state of the resurrected ungodly. We know the state of the resurrected saints, but we don't know what the, the saints are gonna be resurrected in. Is it into their bodies? Is it just their spirits? Uh, is it their, their souls? We don't know. Now, and finally, not all people are treated the same in hell. Some are beaten with few stripes and some are beaten with many stripes. It is said that it's more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the area of Capernaum because they knew more. They had more light. Jesus did the miracles there. Jesus said, if the miracles done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. But Capernaum didn't, and they were going to be judged by the light that they know. And we are judged by the light that we know. The less we know, the less severe the judgment. That's what Jesus was saying. Not everybody's going to be treated the same in heaven. There's a reward system. Jesus said, I am coming and my reward is with me. And we will be rewarded for the things that we do. But there's also a system of being punished in hell and they are different. So what does the Bible say about hell? Hell is confusing because we have the English word hell that is used to encompass several biblical words. And the backstory on the word for hell is interesting. There are four words that are used in the Bible, two Greek and, well, three, let's call it three Greek, one Hebrew. One kind of crosses the line a little bit and we'll get to that. But these words mean something else besides what you think of when you think of hell. But the word hell was used in the King James Bible to, to talk about Sheol, to talk about Tartarus, to talk about uh, Hades, and to talk about Gehenna. 
So every time these four words were brought up, it's, it uses the word hell. But these four words mean distinctly different things. They do not mean the same thing. So no wonder we have trouble when we're reading through our Bible and we read about hell here and hell there and this about hell and that about hell when they're actually different words. Now, this is from the Taylor Francis. This is from TaylorFrancis.com. This is an article entitled Educational Philosophy and Theory, Volume 53, 2021, Issue 4. Okay? This is about the English word or the, the, the etymology of the English word hell. The word hell is derived from an Anglo-Saxon word, Helena, delivered from the Old English, Old Norse, Old German, Hell, H-E-L, or Hella, H-E-L-L-E, circa 725 A.D. That is used in the King James Version of the Bible to capture the Jewish concept of Gehenna as the final destruction of the wicked. Now, if you're familiar with your Greek mythology or the Marvel movies, then you know that Thor has a brother named Loki and Loki has a daughter named Hel, H-E-L, and she oversees the underworld. And so it's a connection. That's where hell comes from. So the concept of hell has some baggage with it already that is brought into the Bible, the English word for hell. Now, the King James Bible uses hell as a catch-all for anything to do with the afterlife for the wicked. I told you the words Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus are all translated hell, and they mean different things. Let's start with Tartarus. That's the easiest one to get out of the way. We find it one time in the Bible. Here's what it says, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, that's Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, there are angels that didn't keep their proper dominion and they sinned, probably Genesis chapter 6. There's controversy about this in the church, but you have the sons of God that see that the daughters of men are beautiful. They make their abode with them and they have children with them and the Nephilim are in the land in those days. And so there are angels that didn't keep their proper place. You don't have to have angels having sex with women in order to have that be what it means. There could be demonic possession that took place and there could be some kind of genetic change because of the demonic possession that caused the Nephilim, okay? So there's different channels that you can go down. But they who violated this, God put in Tartarus. Now, the word Tartarus is a Greek word and it's used also as the holding place for the Titans in Greek mythology. The Titans are held in Greek Tartarus in Greek mythology. So it's a specific place to hold some kind of a being that needs a special kind of holding. It, is, it could be the bottomless pit that they're, that they're bound in. Remember when Jesus came to the Gadareans, that the Gadareans, the, the, the demonic, the demoniac that ran in him, the demon talking inside of him said, have you sent me here? Have you come here to send me to the pit before my time? So you're wondering if this wasn't what he was talking about, or maybe the lake of fire, knowing that the lake of fire is the end of all demonic spirits. Okay, so this is the only time that it is used. And we know that the lake of fire is the end for demons. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, when the Old Testament is talking about the afterlife, okay, so that's, that's it for Tartarus. That's all we're going to get one place. Doesn't really apply to hell. When the Old Testament is talking about the afterlife, and it does often, it talks about destruction of the wicked or the blessings of the upright. It doesn't use the term uh, that would be anything like hell. The term that it uses is very neutral. It's talking about the, the, the righteous dying and the dead dying. And that's one of the parts of confusion when you're reading through the Old Testament. Now, um, I was reading Bart Ehrman's book, which when I, my study in hell, this was the second book that I read. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, but he's not a Christian. And he has a book called Heaven and Hell. And I wanted to read it because I wanted to hear 
what he had to say about the foundations and what the early church fathers believed and the foundations of what hell is. And I found myself, I realized that he is a zealot to attack Christians in the first couple of chapters. I got my, I bristled a lot while I made my way uh, through that book. But one of the things that he said is that the Old Testament never talks about the afterlife. And I thought right on, on top of my head, I'm thinking, what about Daniel 12? where it says that, and then the dead will be raised, everlasting, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. What about Job? I know that I will stand, I know my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on the earth. That's the afterlife. So the Bible does say things about the afterlife, the Old Testament does. And then when I began to do my study and really wanting to look at what the Old Testament said, I found a lot of passages that talked about the afterlife. It just doesn't talk about them in the terms of hell. Listen to Psalm uh, 94, 23. There are over 80 passages that I could choose from to be able to talk about the afterlife from the Old Testament's perspective. Obviously, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Psalms uh, 94, 23. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off from their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So God is talking about what he's doing with the wicked. It says in Psalms, uh, in Proverbs 24, 19, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now, as I say, not just a couple of these passages, there are many of them in the Old Testament. So now we come to our first word that is translated hell, and this is the Hebrew word sheol. And Sheol, first of all, means grave. That's the first meaning. The righteous go to Sheol and the ungodly go to Sheol. Sheol is a neutral place. Secondly, when you're reading through the passages on Sheol, not very often, by the way, but you get like an idea that there's something behind it, a shadowy afterlife behind it without much clarity in the Old Testament. So Bart Aaron could have been true had he said that. We aren't told much about what the afterlife is like. We are told about the righteous being uplifted and the wicked being snuffed out. We're told that throughout the Old Testament. But there's this shadowy background, a secondary meaning of, uh, of uh, Sheol. It's used 65 times in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 1610. I'm going to read it to you in the, New King, in the King James, and then I'm going to read it to you in the New King James. King James, for thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So this is David speaking. Now we know that this is a prophecy and he's talking about the Christ. Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. So if we read that and we made the connection between Acts and Peter saying it was foretold that he would rise from the dead for thou shalt not leave my, your holy one in hell or the holy one to see corruption, then you would from that infer that Jesus went to hell. But Psalm 1610 says in the New King James, very close to the King James, but updated. And this is what you're going to get with the NIV, the ESV, the NASB. It says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. Some of them, one of at least one of them says, thou shalt not leave my soul in the grave, which is what we're seeing here. That's what is being spoken. Proverbs 1511 says, hell and destruction are before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the children of men. And so we read that and we think of, of people being tortured in hell and we think hell and destruction are before the eyes of the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. God cares about the hearts of men. But this is the NIV, Proverbs 15, 11. Death and destruction lie before the Lord, how much more the human hearts. So here they translate Sheol as death. So it's translated as the grave. It's translated as death. In the newer translations, I don't know of a translation that translates them as hell because it is confusing. Now, because this is talking about the grave, it often speaks of knowing nothing. And, and, and there's, I think there's a lot of confusion on these verses. In, in Psalms 115.17, it says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. And so they say, well, then when you're dead, dead you must be sleeping. There must be soul sleep. Because when you're dead, you don't know anything. But what they're looking at is from the, the point of the person dying. They are dead. They, don't, they can't respond. 
They don't know anything. We get this clearly stated to us after several statements like this in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 9, 6, it says, also their love, their hatred, their envy have perished, nor more, no more have they a share in anything done under the sun. That's the idea of these verses. They are no longer living, so they do not have a part in the land of the living. Remember that Samuel was brought up by a medium. God allowed Samuel to come back and have a conversation with Saul. It's not that the dead don't know anything. It's that the dead don't know anything about this, what's going on. They have no place in what's going on above, uh, under the sun. David talked about going and seeing his child that had died. My child will not come back to me, but I will go to them. He had an understanding that there was a life that went on beyond this place. In Psalms 117, excuse me, in Psalms 17, 15, it says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, that's just an example of what we find in the Psalms that connects it to the afterlife for the righteous. So you have the righteous and the unrighteous being spoken of, just not in the same phrase. You have Sheol, which could be the righteous or the unrighteous, and you find that throughout the Old Testament. Now, an, uh, a Greek word that is similar is Hades. As I said, Hades was the god of the underworld in Greek mythology. Hades was in charge of things in hell. But the word Hades became known as the grave. And that's the way it's used in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. It is used in the New Testament. It's used 11 times, so not very often, but it's used. And it is a Greek word. And same thing, it speaks of the grave. It speaks of, a, of an afterlife, a little clearer than the Old Testament speaks of an afterlife. I'll give you a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and, 67, and 57. First <laughs> Corinthians 15, 55 and 56 says, that's kind of like a tongue twister. You should try it. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It's talking about the grave there. Where is the victory of the grave? Where's the victory of death? Where's the victory of the grave? But in Luke 16, when Jesus tells either the parable of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is living uh, just over the top rich. The poor man is begging for his food and the rich man can't even help a man that's at his front door. He's living luxuriously, but he can't even help a man living at his front door. And then they die. And here's what it says. Luke 16, 23. And being in torment in Hades, they lifted up their eyes and saw Abraham afar off. Or he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom or Lazarus being comforted. So Jesus told the story of a rich man and Lazarus who died on the same day and found themselves in Hades, one of them in comfort and one of them in torment. And he says, I'm in torment in these flames, but he can still carry on a conversation. And he also makes excuses for himself being there. He says to Abraham, send my to my brothers and let them know not to come to this place. In other words, if I had enough information, I wouldn't have come to this place. It's not my fault. I'm here. I'm a victim. That's what he's saying. So send somebody to my brothers that they won't come back to this place. And Abraham says they have the, he has the prophets and the law and they will not listen. Even if somebody rises from the dead, someone would rise from the dead and people would still find themselves in the afterworld. So when people die, best case scenario, they go to Hades. And now this is before Jesus died on the cross. We believe that that part of Hades that was, was comfort was emptied out and everyone's in the presence of God now to be absent from this world is to be present with God but that there would still be a place in holding where there is torment and that would be the side that the rich man was on and that would be Hades. That's the closest that we have to our concept of hell, but that's a holding place. It's like you go to a jail and you're tried and then they send you to prison. You go to this part of Hades until you stand before the judge and you're tried and then you go to the lake of fire. And when you go to the lake of fire, that is your eternal destiny. That is closest to what we call hell. And ironically, the lake of fire is never called hell, even though that is the closest. When people say you believe in hell, 
That's what they mean. The lake of fire is what they mean. And ironically, with all the passages in the Bible that talk about it, that's not what they mean. Okay, let's go to the word Gehenna. Now, it's used nine times in the New Testament. Eight times by Jesus. And every time it's translated hell. Let me give you, I found this. Um, it is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not the best place to go to get information, okay? I just want you to know this because I'm going to read from Wikipedia. But to get familiar with a topic, if you, don't, if you haven't been familiar with a topic and you want to get your first bit of familiarity, then go to Wikipedia, read it, and then go other places to look for your evidence, okay? But I just want to read Gehenna because I want you to get familiar with what it is, okay? So it says this, the Valley of Hinnom is first mentioned in the Hebrew Bible as part of the border between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in Joshua 15.8. During the late first temple period, it was the site of Tophet. Tophet is an altar that is made to, Mar to Molech that they burned children on. So he, it, it points out that uh, during the late first temple period, that's the time of Solomon's temple, it was a site of Tophet where some of the kings of Judah sacrificed their children by fire, Jeremiah 7.31. Thereafter, it was cursed by the biblical prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19.2-6. We'll read that in a moment. It, in later Jewish rabbinic literature, this is really important, later rabbinic Jewish literature, Gehenna became associated with divine punishment. So, so this is what... Bart Ehrman had talked about the century before and after and during the time of Jesus that Gehenna had become known as a place of punishment. It was, it was, not, a, it was not a burning trash dump, right? I, was, I went off on that last week enough. I don't need to go off on it anymore, okay? Don't ever say it was a burning uh, trash dump. If it was a burning trash dump, archaeologists would have found evidence of it and there's none, all right? And, um, but... It, it is a place that was cursed and became associated with divine punishment. Um, it, it says in Jewish apocryphal literature as a destination of the wicked. So other than just Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, it uses Gehenna in the way Jesus did. In other rabbinical writings, it uses Gehenna in the way that Jesus did. In other words, he spoke about it the way his culture understood it. Okay? Uh, it says it is different from the more natural term Sheol, the abode of the dead. The King James Version of the Bible translates both um, with the Anglo-Saxon word for hell. All right, now let me read to you the curse. Jeremiah is going to curse this valley of Gehenna because there they have a tophet where they sacrifice children. Here's what it says. This is Jeremiah 19, 2 through 6. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's the valley of Gehenna. It borders up against Israel. You can stand on the Temple Mount and you can see the Valley of Gehenna. It's the valley directly below. And it meets up with the, the Kidron Valley, which Jesus went across to go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, um, go out to the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, which is the entry of the Potshard Gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I bring such a catastrophe on this place. God curses Gehenna and says, I'm going to bring a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of, of it, his ears will tingle because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense to other gods whom they never knew. Their fathers nor their kings of Judah have known. And they filled this place with the blood of the innocents. The blood of innocents. God calls the children that were sacrificed innocent. We talked about this three Sundays ago or three Wednesdays ago when we talked about what does God do with children who die before they know what their right and left hand are. And here God calls them innocent. I also believe that children that are taken within the womb are innocent as well. And I also believe that we have something going on in the United States of America that is as appalling to God as what we're reading about here maybe even more so, and I'll explain why more so here in just a moment. It says, so he said, um, because of the blood of the innocents, 
They have also built a high place to Baal, to burn their sons with fire for a burnt offering to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. God says, I didn't even come into my mind that you would do such a thing or to tell you to do such a thing. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. This place shall not be called Tophet, nor the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So God promises or curses this valley that there will be a great slaughter there. Now, some believe when Jesus was talking about Gehenna, better for you to chop off your right hand than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenna, that he was actually talking about the attack on Israel by the Romans and that there would be bodies literally thrown into Gehenna. I don't know that that's what it's saying. I don't see any support for that. Also, by the time Jeremiah wrote it, you also had the Babylonians destroying. Thought it was a phone call. Somehow I set a timer. Who knows? I set a timer. Telling me I'm already late. I'm already behind. Um, so um, the Babylonians also destroyed the temple. And some believe that maybe during that time it became a curse and there was a great slaughter in the Valley of Gehenna. But what we do know is that in the last days, that the armies at Armageddon are going to gather from the east and the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet and they're going to attack Jerusalem and part of the city is going to fall and there is going to be a great slaughter in the city in those days and perhaps that's what he's talking about when the valley of Gehenna becomes a great slaughter. Now we also know that the sacrificing of children, Tophet in Gehenna, was not widespread. It was isolated cases. Again, we know this because there's no archaeology. We have places in Israel where they have found the stones, the tophet, where they sacrifice children, buried build children in jars, buried burnt children in jars around it. We have found the sites in Israel where the Canaanites caused their children to pass through fire to Baal. There's also some other gruesome things that were found there. Children that had been, babies that had been decapitated, a, a girl that had been cut in half, about five years old. So there were other things that they found that were disturbing in these places. But there are several places that they found. Why? Because there's a lot of remains of bones. Because you can't do these things and then walk away. The ground's going to recover some things, but there's still evidence of what happened there. In the Valley of Gehenna, there's, there's none of that. You don't find any of that. Why? Because it was probably isolated. It was the kings doing it. The kings of Israel were doing it. And it was isolated. They probably took the bodies and buried them in their own special way. They didn't just leave them there like people just randomly went and did it. So we don't know how many people did it in Gehenna, but it wasn't widespread. It was more isolated. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. And God was so appalled with it happening in the, the valley of Hinnom that God cursed the valley. Now, Isaiah 66, 24. Jesus quotes this. When he talks about hell, it will say hell in the New Testament. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 66, 24, which is talking about the valley of Gehenna that has been cursed. Listen to what it says. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses. This is after people come to it's after the battle of Armageddon. People come to worship the Lord in Jerusalem and they will go out to look upon the corpses of him who has transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Don't miss. That's Isaiah 66, 24. Jesus, when he says where the worm never dies and the fire doesn't go out, he's quoting from Isaiah 66, 24. He could be talking about the fire that consumes the body that is unquenchable, can't be put out. And when he says the worm never dies, maybe God isn't making an eternal worm that never dies, like a, like a vampire that can't be killed. Maybe God is talking about the worm, their worm never dies until their body is eaten. There will be worms in the body until it is eaten. I'm just giving you some other ideas. He could be talking in, an, in, a, in, a, in a way as an idiom, and, and prophecy does this. Prophecy uses pictures to make certain points. It is doesn't always making it isn't always literal when you're reading the pictures that they're making. So the pictures that he made here was something exaggerated. The worm never dies and the fire that never goes out could be speaking not of a fire that burns forever or a worm that never dies. This is important when we get over into the New Testament. So Jesus almost exclusively talked about Gehenna. 
There's only one passage that does it, and that's in James. And that's where James says the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. So that's an analogy where you're talking about the tongue like a fire. What we say, our words can be so devastating that Gehenna is caught on fire by Gehenna. James is first century as well. He knows the literature of their day and how Gehenna is used as a place of punishment. And the tongue is, is turned on or set on fire like Gehenna. So Jesus uses it. The vast majority of times that he uses it is this one statement. This is Mark 9, 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter in light, into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell. That's Gehenna. Into the fire that shall never be quenched and the worm that does not die and the fire that is never quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna, hell, into the fire that shall not be quenched, where their worm never dies, and, if the, and the fire is not quenched. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out of. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into Gehenna, or hell, fire, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. There's one passage in the book of Mark. Jesus uses Gehenna eight times. He uses it three times there. So there are five other places that Jesus uses this word. Another one of them is in Matthew 18, 9. It's the same passage. It's Matthew's account of the same passage. Luke also has an account of the same passage. So a lot of it is in this one passage where he's quoting from Isaiah 66. Now, in Matthew, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in Gehenna, in hell. Now, is he talking about destroying the body and the soul? Is that, is that literal? Or is he talking about the body and soul being destroyed in an eternal fire and torment? And I, I don't know that I have the answer to that. But I do understand the people who say, it says destroy the body and soul in hell. Now, someone would say, well, what about spirit? We have a body, soul, and a spirit. Well, the soul and the spirit, I don't have time to get into this. I will at another time. But the soul and the spirit are difficult for theologians. Theologians and, and scholars debate whether you and I have a body, soul, and spirit or a body and a soul. And it's because the same word is used sometimes to speak of, the, called the spirit and sometimes to speak of the soul. And so we're not always really aware of what it says. So in 1 Thessalonians, there's a passage that says, our whole body, soul, and spirit. So it uses all three. And then there's the passage in Hebrews chapter four that says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get in between the soul and the spirit. So there still could be a spirit here, even if the body and the soul is destroyed. Okay, we, we, we just want to look at these honestly, right? We want to look at the passages honestly and we want to deal with them as they are. So this, I don't think, is a passage that confirms the duration of hell being being temporary or confirms the duration of hell being eternal. I don't think it can be. Now, in Matthew 5, 22, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is not a good word, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, is in danger of Gehenna fire. Think about that. What you, you say, well, I, I, I don't deserve, you know, Gehenna. Have you ever called anybody a fool? Have you ever said worse to the guy who pulls out in front of you and goes slow? You're worthy of Gehenna? You're worthy of hell? What it does is it brings it to all of us that all of us are in danger of this place because we may think that we are better than we really are. Finally, in... Um, in Luke 12, 5, Jesus says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast you into Gehenna. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Jesus is teaching us to fear God because God will one day judge us and we should always be afraid of the judge who has the power to be able to cast us into Gehenna. Now, is Gehenna this cursed place where the bodies are? Is it eternal? Well, I guess let's prayerfully consider that. Now, Old Testament examples, we have the flood. And in 1 Peter 5, 3, 5 through 7, 
It says that the, this is an example that we would not live ungodly, that the day of judgment and perdition might not come upon us. We also have Sodom and Gomorrah as an example in the Old Testament. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 6, and turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who would live ungodly. So just as the flood was a warning towards the ungodly that we wouldn't live that way, and, and violence covered the earth, so Sodom and Gomorrah are an example. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have been found, by the way. Look up Dr. Stephen Collins, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there was a heat event that destroyed these two cities that turned pottery into glass that only an atomic blast could do. And we will talk about it at some point. I just want you to know that. It's as if in the last days, God's saying, here's the cities. They have been found. And we know that what the Bible said about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by a heat event. And I'm using scientific terms here because that's what they say. They don't say it was destroyed by fire and brimstone. A heat event destroyed them. Jude 1, 7 says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to those having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, just a couple of passages on everlasting or permanent torment. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, are they destroyed permanently or is this destruction an analogy for eternal conscious torment? That's the question. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. These are the kind of verses that people say and then act like that proves their position. I don't know that it does prove it. Is the contempt forever, therefore not eternal punishment? Or is the contempt by the individual who's in constant contempt because they are under eternal conscious torment? Matthew 25, 46. The, uh, and these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into everlasting life. The word everlasting and eternal, the righteous into eternal life, is the same word in the Greek, ionios, which means forever. The question, though, is this saying that the punishment is eternal, conscious torment, or is the punishment permanent, permanent that it will be permanent? They'll be punished and it will be permanent. It will never be changed. Now let's turn to the book of Revelation. I'm going to get this thing done. Let me drive through this, all right? Let's turn to the book of Revelation. A couple of passages that are really important here. And this is the passages that get closest to eternal conscious torment. And that's why I don't want to stop here, okay? Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast of his image or receives the mark on his forehead or hand, he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out in full strength as a cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. So there's tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and the presence of the Lamb. Are they tormented forever in the presence of the Lamb and the presence of the holy angels? That seems unlikely to me, but it goes on to say this, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now I want to say that that term forever and ever is an idiom that we find other places in scripture that means that it's completely gone or that it, it, it doesn't mean forever and ever. I'll give you two examples. Isaiah 34, 10 says, and this is the destruction of the city of Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. This is Isaiah 34, 10. It shall, it shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from one generation to another. It shall lie in waste no one shall pass through forever and ever. Well, we know that the fire is not going to go on forever and ever because it's going to be destroyed. Or Revelation 19.3, talking about the destruction of the city of Babylon, which may be Edom, by the way, maybe the same place. It says, again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke arises forever and ever. So the city of Babylon, which is on earth, which is going to fade away from the presence of God, and I guess maybe out in space, the smoke could be going on forever and ever. But these are terms that are used that speak of 
um, that speak of going up forever and ever could be uh, an idiom or maybe not. I have one more, Revelation 20.10. The devil, well, let me go back up here. The smoke will arise forever and ever. But then listen to this. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast of his image who receives the mark of his name. Now, those who believe in, in conditional immortality, that the soul is immortal only upon a condition of salvation, say that it doesn't say day and night forever and ever. But the way it reads, they have no rest day and night. It doesn't quite read like that. And so this is why we've got to, got to really look into these things and consider them. And the passage that actually talks about eternal conscious torment, there's one that does. This is Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil was delivered to them and cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, again, we've talked about how that term forever and ever could be an idiom. So that's cut those who believe in eternal in conditional immortality will say, does it necessarily mean forever and ever? Because they'll quote the other passages. Some also will say that the false beast and the Antichrist are demons rather than people. And they go back to Revelation where the Antichrist comes out of a pit and they'll say that's a demonic activity rather than being born. And the false prophet comes out of the ground as well. So there are answers that they give. I don't want to give a side without giving another side. There are answers that they give to these. Now, whether or not they're satisfactory, I don't know. But what I do know is that whatever, whatever this punishment is and whatever the duration of hell is, it is not someplace anyone wants to go. And, and I get accused when I say that there's different levels of punishment in hell of people saying to me that I'm trying to make hell look like a place where people want to go. I promise you that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to honestly look at the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say and see if the Bible doesn't give us the direction here. Now, God is a judge. And some people don't like that. And he will judge you and me. We will, I believe we stand before him on the great white judgment throne. There are a lot of people who don't, but when I read it, I don't see us excluded from it. And the books are opened and we are in the book of life. And so we are judged by what we do, but because the book of life takes away the things we've done bad, we're judged for the good things that we do, which is pretty amazing. Number two, it says that God is a just judge. Deuteronomy 32, four, he is the rock. His work is perfect for his ways are justice and God will treat them justly. Now, now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that whatever God does, it is just and you better not question it. Because that's what some people, where some people go. You better not question God because God's, God is just in whatever he does. So if God does something that you don't think is just, it's just, even though you might not think, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God will be just in the way that he treats people. That when we look at it in the end, we're gonna go, yes, it is just. Now I do have a closing and I wanna go through it, okay? And that is, why do we, perceive sometimes that God's judgment and punishments are unfair. I've got a couple reasons. Number one, perhaps we don't know how bad sin is. We're used to sin. We have a sin nature. We sin. And we go, it's not fair for God to punish me because we all have sin. I mean, Jesus said it. You say to your brother, you fool, you're in danger of hell. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, maybe we don't understand how bad sin is. And maybe that ought to make us think about repentance a little bit more and about not practicing sin and walking in righteousness. Number two, we have sinned against a holy and perfect God. If I, um, if I go into someone's yard with a high-powered pellet gun and I shoot their dog and I get caught, I'm going to do Probably going to do some time for that these days, but maybe not. Maybe like he's a pastor, does a lot of good things, you know, and, and, and he's not a flight risk. And, you know, so, so maybe I do. I don't know. Maybe I get a bracelet or something, right? Horrible thing to shoot a dog in the head, right? Somebody's put in somebody's pet, especially, right? Horrible thing to do. But if I took, and I got to try to think this through because I don't want anybody to think this is a threat. But if I, if I took a, a pellet gun 
and snuck up on, on an ambassador of a major, major country. And I shot him in the head with a pellet gun. I'll probably not see in the daylight again, right? Even if he survives, because it was a pellet gun. I'm not seeing daylight again. Why? Because an offense against a dog is not the same as an offense against an ambassador of a major country. And so we are offending a holy God who's much more holy than we could ever imagine, who is higher than we could ever think. And so then the offense, the cursing, the, the, the um, pejorative terms towards God that people do all the time are much more of a violation than we think. And there will be justice. And that's maybe one of the reasons that we in the end will go, well, God is just because we will see what was done. And if I did that, if I snuck up on an ambassador and shot him in the head, you guys would all go, well, kind of like Robert, but what an idiot <laughs> that he did that. Who would go to an ambassador and do such a thing? But who would go to a holy, pure, righteous God and curse him or defy him? Or to say, I don't want him. One of the things I like that Frank Turek does, and I'm going to do this in closing and I'm not going to do any other closing, Johnny, just so you know, I'm going to hand things off. A little tag team here, right? Um, Frank Turek says in, um, when he's interviewing, Frank Turek uh, is an apologist and he interviews students. He goes to colleges, does a presentation, and then he talks to students, puts up a microphone, students come up. And when he gets a lot of pushback from a student, he'll say to them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Most often the person says no. Think about that statement. What should the answer be? If, if I'm asked a question, if atheism is true, would you believe it? My answer should be yes. Because I want to know the truth. My answer should be yes. I might be a little hesitant and go, I don't think it is true. But I would have to say, well, if it is true, then yes, I would believe it. But instead, when they say, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And they say, no. That tells you that it's a heart issue and not a head issue. The real issue for people not wanting to follow God is a moral issue. That's why, why people are not. When you're talking to people, your friends and family who you love and you want to see come to Christ and they are hostile towards you, they are, they are not on a relentless pursuit of the truth. They're hostile because they don't want God to interview with the way they live. And even in the day when there's so much evidence, archaeology that's being found, evidence for the Bible, evidence for Scripture, in a day that we're living where all of these things are happening, still people saying, I won't serve God no matter what. And that is a scary thing. No wonder the Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there are that find it. May we have a true passion for souls. May we cry out for our loved ones, families and friends who don't know the Lord. So regardless of the duration of hell, they do not find themselves standing before God and being sentenced, punished for their sins. Because who knows whether we're even capable now of judging what is right or fair. Maybe we don't know enough about God or maybe we don't know enough about ourselves to really make fair judgments.